Hi, everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning back into our series on Revelation. It is hard to believe we only have a few left. Today is chapter 19, and then we just have 20, 21, and 22. So I hope that this series has been helpful for you, or at least given you some things to consider and think about as you do your own research. And it's been really wonderful just spending time together like this. So just appreciate you tuning in. You know, one thing I want to mention that as we get towards the end of Revelation, there is something that many of us tend to overlook. And it's the fact that there are seven visions that take place. Just as there are three sets of seven judgments, right? We've already gone through those and there's other series or sets of seven in Revelation. There are seven final visions that occur before the end of the letter. And we tend to miss this really due to the fact that translators added chapter breaks to our Bibles. And so these seven visions are now split between three chapters because that's how we read the Bible, right? We tend to read a chapter and maybe we'll skip to another book and do a chapter out of something else or pull a verse in here or a verse in there, not necessarily reading it consecutively through. Some people do, but not many. But more than likely, I imagine that the chapter breaks were added to our Bibles in order to make things easier for the reader. I totally understand that. And in some cases, when we study the Bible, it's definitely proved helpful. Helpful. But over time, it's also done us a great disservice because rather than search the scriptures out as Christians were used to doing, which resulted in a more thorough understanding of the books of the Bible and reading them and applying them, taking them in their proper context, we today, we look things up. And the result of that is we oftentimes take passages completely out of context of their original meaning within that book. Remember, friends, the Bible, the books of the Bible, they are all written in a context of time, a context of space, and they have a particular audience in mind. There is a purpose for that book. And what we do is we take out the things that we want to immediately apply in our life. Fine. But we also have to make sure we're reading that book in its proper context in order to fully understand the message that is being relayed. And so due to chapter breaks and revelation, we miss these seven important visions that take place at the end of the letter. But we're going to discuss those. So, but first, before we get to that, let's start by reading the chapter first, chapter 19 first, then we'll get into our discussion. Chapter 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." You know, in chapters 19 and 20, you will start to see that the series of events that unfold in those chapters, they bring history as we know it to a close, where our world is brought to an end at last. And we begin to see that begin here. The first three of the visions I mentioned take place in chapter 19. Try to notice in your Bible, in Revelation, when the text transitions from verbal to visual revelations. Throughout the previous section, notice how John says, I heard. Then the phrase becomes repeated, I saw, until it changes back to, I heard again. But seven times, John says over the next three chapters, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. And this is where the seven visions are clearly discerned. You'll have the I heards, but pay attention to the I saws. These visions, they not only belong together, but they are seven consecutive things that happen after each other. They are chronological. And if it weren't for the chapter divisions, these seven visions would have been noticed by most readers. And honestly, there would be far fewer, if any, arguments about the millennium, which we haven't talked about yet. But there's a lot of arguments about the millennium. 
And so just as it was also about these visions with the seven judgments, those, the seven judgments, how they were in like a pattern, the first four visions belong together. The next two less closely. And then the last one, like the judgments, stands on its own. Now I'll address the first vision shortly, but first Let's talk about the opening of this chapter because it opens up with exaltation and celebration with a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! And an announcement is taking place that the bride has made herself ready. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Yes, there is the bride that is the new Jerusalem. But there is the bride that is the people of God, the saints of the Most High. And that word marriage in Revelation 19.7, it's used in connection to a wedding banquet. It references a wedding feast. So the bride is ready. The people of God have made themselves ready here on earth. They are now dressed in fine linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And the festivities are all planned. Everything's ready to begin. But the bridegroom hasn't appeared yet. But then suddenly, chapter 19, verse 11, describes something incredible. Heaven opened. Opened. And behold, John sees a white horse with a rider on it. It's Jesus. And he's riding out of heaven to deal with the remaining things on the earth. Pay attention. He's no longer riding a donkey. He's on a white horse, a horse that, as we mentioned before, is always a symbol of military aggression. And that's exactly what's being described. It says he's coming to make war. He's coming to make war on evil and bring it to its final end. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus as king, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns, absolute supreme authority. And his name is called the word of God. And this is the first vision. Verses 11 through 16. It's a picture of what's called perusia. It's the arrival of a royal visitor to be met. It's a common word, actually, Christians use, perusia, because they like to use that word when they talk about the rapture. Uzia means to be, and para means to be beside. Jesus, it's showing us here, is going to be beside us again. He is making an arrival onto the scene in spectacular glory, but he's riding out of heaven first, to make war and on his thigh and robe is embroidered king of kings and lord of lords he is the word who will be among us again and notice friends in the bible there are two places where he is called the word in the book of john chapter one and now here in revelation in john's vision and that word word is logos and that means reason for everything he is the reason for everything he is the ultimate knowledge of it all and his robe is even dipped in blood only it's not his own blood this time it's the blood of those 
he's killing. He is executing his wrath against evil. And did you know, did you realize that the battle hymn of the Republic actually makes mention of this very moment from Revelation? When it says, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I'm not a singer. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That line is straight from this passage. Wine is symbolic of God's wrath. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Then they join the chorus of heaven singing hallelujah. That's where this comes from. This is quite the scene. Jesus is returning to execute vengeance. And this is going to be a huge shock to the world who have painted only one view of Jesus. You see, Jesus came on his first visit to save. But he is coming on his second visit to deal with evil and make it all right again. Then we have the second vision, and this comes up in verses 17 to 18. It's an angelic invitation to birds. An angel is inviting the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. God is hosting a supper for birds. Because there will be a whole area on the earth that is going to be covered with corpses. A literal area in the Middle East covered in corpses. Most believe this place to be the plain of Estrelion or called the plain of Jezreel in Israel. And this plain will be covered with dead bodies of kings, of captains, mighty men, armies, people, small and great. And the birds are told to gather to feast on the carcasses of the fallen armies gathered in opposition against Christ. Now, let me tell you about the plain of Jezreel for a minute. We discuss the land of Israel in detail in our podcast episode titled, Why Israel Part One. I encourage you to listen to that because it will explain the land of Israel in detail and why it has always been a point of contention among the nations. But the Jezreel Valley in Israel is the only flat area in between the hills of Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is, and the hills of Galilee in the north. It's sandwiched right there between them. And this enormous valley has been the location of countless battles, big battles throughout the ages with different empires but also the location of many of the events that we find take place in our Bible. It is the very location to which God is drawing the armies of the nations together in order to contend with them. But why there? What is so significant about this valley? Well, it's because Israel is located in what some call the crossroads of the world. That's where this valley is located. This country of Israel, this land of Israel that has this valley is located in what they call the crossroads of the world, in the heart of the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East. The Fertile Crescent 
is a fertile area that stretches pretty much from uh, where Babylon was all the way like a half, like a uh, new moon shape or a boomerang shape up by Syria down through Israel to the northern part of Egypt. It was just a very fertile area of the Middle East, which is very dry. To the north of this valley, this Jezreel Valley in Israel, you had Syria and Babylon, which a little more to the east. And then to the south of Israel, of this fertile crescent, you have Egypt. And the main route for travel in order to avoid the desert to get from one continent to another, whether you were going from Egypt out to uh, India or whether you were going from Europe all the way down to Africa, wherever you were going, the main route for travel to avoid the desert, whether for armies or for traders, was the road through Israel. This key route that crisscrossed right in the heart of the Jezreel Valley. And it became known as the crossroads of the world. That's why. And that's why Galilee is also called the Galilee of the nations. It's where the nations converged. And this valley, this Jezreel Valley, it butts up against a small hill, the hill of Megiddo. And so this area, Megiddo and the valley, was a very strategic place in your Bible. It's here where a lot of events took place. For example, this is where King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had their palace. This is where Queen Jezebel met her death. This is the area where the prophetess Deborah in the book of Judges came against Sisera. This is where the area of uh, where Gideon had his battle. This is where King Saul and Jonathan died. King Saul died on Mount Gilboa, which you can see from there. This is the area where King Josiah died. This is in the area where Jesus uh, rose uh, the child of the, the woman of name, the widow of Nain. Uh, on, in history, this is where Napoleon fought Alexander the Great. This is a very important area of land. And the Greek word for Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, meaning the hill of Megiddo. So this location, this valley that butts up against this hill of Megiddo becomes the area of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon I'm sure you've heard of. The Bible mentions Armageddon only once, or the Revelation mentions Armageddon only once, and that's in Revelation 16, 16 where it says, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Well, that's in this valley that butts up against Megiddo, Armageddon. And this end time battle that's mentioned in Revelation 16, 16 is believed to be the battle that we're reading about in this chapter, this battle of Armageddon taking place in the plain of Jezreel in this valley. So it's a strategic valley in the northern part of Israel, for the whole world actually. Whoever controls this region of Israel, whoever controls this place, they know they control the world. It's crucial even today. That's why there is such contention for the land with all of the Middle Eastern nations coming against Israel. Maybe you have a bit better understanding why this area of Israel is still hotly contested for today. I can't go into all that right now. Please tune into that podcast, Why Israel Part 1. 
But you know what? An interesting fact is Winston Churchill, who knew his Bible, he really thought that the end of the World War II was going to take place in this valley because what happened was the armies of Italy were coming in through Israel, pressing the British armies down into Egypt. Then you had the German armies coming through Crete, coming into the eastern part of the Mediterranean towards Israel. So all of this convergence was happening with these countries coming in to battle each other. And so with the arrival of world armies, it appeared to Churchill, this could be the end. So he sent his men there to go start drawing up battle plans for the end time battle. So it's just really a fascinating place. There's just so much to, there's so much to dig, to, to dig into when it comes to Israel and the land itself and why the history has played out the way that it has. But here's this angel calling out to these birds of prey to come and eat and feast on the flesh of fallen men. It's talking about eating up and cleaning up a huge army that has fallen. The only way a pile of corpses like from a battle of Armageddon could be removed, honestly, is through birds that would have to eat them. There would not be a grave big enough for those many corpses. So this is a huge army. If you've ever been to Israel, you know the size of this valley. It's enormous. So a huge army is supposedly going to gather in this spot. But whose army? And what is it doing there? Well, that brings us to the third vision that Jesus has come back for. Jesus has been joined in Jerusalem with all of his saints, all of his people. And it's a huge number of his disciples, not just Christians, many Jews that have come to believe in their Messiah as well. And what this has done, it has created a crisis for the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They have mustered up an army, kings, rulers, generals, and others, and brought them into the plain of Jezreel in order to attack the hills of Judea. Once those armies are gathered, once you gather your armies in the valley, which has been proven in times past, then you can start moving forward into the mountains and taking over Jerusalem. And that was the plan. That was the intention. Because they wanted to get rid of Jesus a second time. So they were planning a second assassination attempt. But it wasn't going to happen. The Battle of Armageddon that so many people reference today, right? Well, it's not really a battle at all. Because once these armies are gathered together, once they're all gathered in that valley, Jesus smites them all with the word of his mouth, the sharp two-edged sword that comes from his mouth, which is his word, because he is the word. Jesus needs only a word to raise the dead or kill the living, my friends. This is more of a sentence that he's rendering than a struggle. It is going to be over just like that. Do you remember when we said way back when we were describing, I can't remember which episode it was in, about the two-edged sword that the Roman soldiers used, how the destructive power of a two-edged sword, how when it's wielded in close proximity, how destructive it can be? Well, Jesus as the word, Jesus' word, the word in general, the words in your Bible, the word of God and Jesus himself, 
It's sharper than all that. The Bible says that the word of God is sharper and more powerful than a two-edged sword. He smites this army, this army that is of the Antichrist, the beast, and of the false prophet. He he gets into such proximity to them that he speaks forth his word and it cuts. It cuts them all down because his word gets so close that it cuts between soul and spirit. That's why I pray the word. That's why I declare the word forth. That's why I use the word so much, whether we're teaching, whether we're praying, whether we're praying over our communities, whether we're declaring truths over our family. It's a powerful weapon. It cuts away the lies. And in this case, it cuts down the false trinity and it cuts down the whole army gathered with them. And that's how Jesus is going to smite his enemies, by his word. Whoosh, just like that. Then vultures will deal with the bodies, again, too many to bury. So the unholy trinity, he musters this massive army. Jesus speaks, and it kills them all. This whole empire of the holy trinity, unholy trinity, is destroyed. And what's fascinating about it is that there are two of this whole entire army that are taken alive, the Antichrist and the false prophet. He takes them alive and throws them alive into the lake of fire. They will be the first human beings to go there. They don't make it to the judgment seat. They go straight into the lake of fire while the rest of the valley is filled with corpses. And Satan, we'll find out what happens to him in the next episode. Thank you all for tuning in today. I look forward to our next time together as we cover chapter 20 and a couple more visions. Take care. God bless you. (music) 